Good morning, Journey. Awesome to see you as always. Uh, If you were here last week and if you're paying attention around you at all right now, you know that we're in a sermon series that we're calling Jesus for President. We're exploring the question of really what would it look like if Jesus was in charge of our country, if he was the ultimate authority in everything going on in our country. Well, today I want to shrink that question down just a little bit. And I want it to come up close and personal to you. I want you to think about the question, what would it look like if Jesus was president of your life? What would it look like if Jesus was the ultimate authority for you? So the one question that I want us to be thinking about today is, is Jesus your president? And maybe a more biblical way to even couch that question in more biblical language would be, is Jesus, your king? Is Jesus your Lord? Now, I think probably the knee jerk response for most of us would be if you've been around church, would be absolutely yes, count me in. Jesus is my king. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my president. But I want to tell you a little bit about my own story to couch a little bit of context for what I'm going to be talking about today. I grew up in a home with a mother that absolutely loved Christ. And she modeled incredibly what it looked like to walk intimately with God. This was the environment that I grew up in. And probably from a very young age, I don't remember exactly when, but I I did the thing called asking Jesus into my heart. But the truth is, I probably did that over and over and over in my life because the truth was that I never felt like I was really connected with God. I saw what was going on in my mom's life, and I never experienced that quite the same way in my own life. But I was doing everything that Christians did. I went to all the things that Christians did. But there was very little change on the inside of my life. And this is how I lived my life. I chased the things of the world. Even though there was part of me that had affection toward the things of God, my life was really about chasing the things of this world. To this very day, I have conversations with people that I I haven't seen since I was in high school. And you know, especially with guys, ultimately that conversation gets to the place where they ask, so what do you do now? And I tell them, well, actually I'm involved in ministry. I'm a pastor. And you can just kind of see this look on their face like, really? A pastor? And I'm, I'm imagining this bubble goes above their head that says, shouldn't there be some kind of standards for pastors, you know, I, I kind of remember what you were like. And I just chalk it up to the grace of God and move on in the conversation. But this was what characterized my life when I was in high school and it continued on when I went to college. But during my sophomore year of college, and I've shared some of these things with you all before, I met someone involved with the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ that initiated with me and sat down with me and began to talk with me really openly and honestly about what God was like and what he had done for me. And now I'm absolutely certain that there wasn't any new information that he had given me because my mom had taken me to church my entire life. I had gone to an incredible church where the Bible was taught very, very well. But there was something that happened during my time with him that I, I don't know how to describe it other than it seemed like the light bulb came on and I began to see Christ for who he really was. And I remember leaving my time with him and walking across campus, and I don't know that exactly what I expressed to God, but I know what was in my heart. 
It was this, God, if you are like that, if you are like what he just talked about, then I want you. My life is yours. And I remember I began to see change in my life. It wasn't overnight, and sometimes it wasn't all at once. It was subtle, but yet it was very, very significant. One of the first things that I began to see this change in my life was that there was a hunger in my life to read the Word of God. And I actually felt like God was speaking to me through His Word. I had tried to read the Bible my whole life, but it always just seemed confusing, and I just kind of gave up on it. But I began to see that God was speaking to me through His Word. And I actually wanted to obey him, the things that he was saying to me. I began to see that my values began to change. What I really wanted in my life was completely changing. And the things that mattered most to me were changing. And I did begin to see this deep desire in the bottom of my heart that I wanted to be obedient to God. Now, I didn't live it out perfectly all of the time. But I could look and in my honest heart of hearts, I wanted to do what was right before God. I would find myself at those same environments that I'd been at before, those fraternity parties. And instead of doing the things that I used to do, I'd find myself in conversations, talking with people about Jesus. I was wondering, what in the world is going on with me? This is so different for me. I wanted to tell people about Christ. I wanted to tell people about what God was doing in my life. And when I thought about how I wanted to spend my time, I loved getting to go to these environments where people grow. I was involved with the ministry of Campus Crusade, and they'd have these retreats and conferences. And I just thought, I want to go to places where I could learn how to get closer with God, learn how to obey Him better. And throughout the course of my life in college, I came to the point where I graduated, and I just thought, what matters more than helping other young people that were just like me come to this kind of a relationship with God that is changing them from the inside out. But I want to tell you, there came a place during my spiritual journey that something began to bubble up in me that was actually pretty startling to me, sobering to me, and I would probably even use the word scary. See, my whole life I'd grown up around Christianity. I did the things that Christians do. I would have looked like anybody else in this room. But what I realized is that I knew a lot about God, but I didn't actually know him in a real intimate and personal way. See, when I first started seeing these changes taking place in my life, what I really thought was happening at first was that I was finally getting serious about my faith. I was finally taking the God thing seriously in my life. But as I began to study the Bible and I began to understand what it means to have a transformed life, I realized that before that time when I was a sophomore in college, I didn't really know him. I was attracted to the things of Christ. As best as I even knew my own heart, I was sincere about all those things. But I came to the point where I realized all that time I had been sincerely lost, sincerely separated from God. And so this raises a lot of questions in your mind. I started to ask myself, was I just some kind of anomaly? Did somehow I just kind of slip through the cracks of American Christianity? Was I just that one in a million or the slow kid that doesn't get what's going on? Everybody else is getting it except for me. 
And as I got involved in ministry with college students, I began to see that this is not a very unusual thing at all. There are lots of people that grow up in Christian environments, that do the Christian thing, even their whole life, but yet they never come to that place where they really feel like, I'm living day by day, moment by moment, in intimate communion with the God who made me. And in our ministry with college students, so often we would see people that came from these great Christian homes, that it was during their time in college that they actually realized I'm separated from God, and they actually came to the place where they bowed their knee before their God and their king, and they said, I surrender my life to you, and began to see transformation taking place from the inside out. They finally came to the place where Jesus was really their president. Jesus was really their king. And so I began to think, like, is, how, do, how do we address this issue? How do we address the issue that there's the possibility that this is going on in American Christianity? And I want us to look and address the issue from a text of scripture that Jesus paints from his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. He paints a very clear picture that this idea that people can be involved in the things of God and still be separated from him is not an unusual thing at all. In fact, it's very usual, but yet it's very scary at the same time. This is a picture that Jesus paints of people standing before him at the final judgment. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I want us to just step back from that text for a second and make a few observations. What do we see going on there with these people? There's one thing that we know about them. They have a theological understanding of who Jesus is. They call him Lord. The Greek word kurios. You are Lord, you are master. Jesus, we understand who you are. You are the son of God. They know who Jesus is. They know about him. And we know that they are emotionally and passionately involved. When they call out to him, it's repeated, Lord, Lord. In the Hebrew culture, when you want to emphasize something, when you want to show passion and emotion, you repeat it. It's not just Lord, it's Lord, Lord. These are people that are passionately involved. And they're involved extensively in Christian service. They are casting out demons. They are performing miracles. And I think it's interesting in that text that we just read that Jesus never denies that these people did those things. He, just, he never said, you didn't do those things. Come on. They were extensively involved in Christian service. And here's the thing we need to understand. All those things that we read about right there, those are true of all people that truly know Jesus. If those things are not true of your life, you are outside of the kingdom of God. Someone that knows who Jesus is theologically, 
that are emotionally involved with him and are involved in service to the kingdom of God, those are true of everyone who's a believer. But this is what is staggering to me, is that just because those traits are there doesn't necessarily mean that a person is a believer. This is how Jesus responds to them. He says, I never knew you. I never knew you. And that, that word knew is very important here in this text. Because in that language, when they use the word know, they're not just talking about an intellectual knowledge of something. He's talking about an intimate relational experience of something. It wasn't that Jesus didn't have the information about this person. It wasn't like their name had got lost somewhere on a list somewhere and Jesus had forgotten about them. What he's saying is that I never knew you personally and intimately. In that culture, oftentimes they would use that word know to describe virginity even. When Mary is described as a virgin, it says, actually literally translated, she had not known a man. That word know is speaking of intimacy. And what the text is saying is that Jesus said, although you were involved in all these things, you didn't know me in an intimate and personal way. And so I read that and my heart just starts to pound and I just think, what's going on? What's going on with those people? Were they just confused? Did they not know? Did they they know the whole time that they were just pretending? Did they know that they were just going through the motions and at that time they were desperately disconnected from their Savior? And there's no way for me to know what was going on in the heart of those people, but I believe that these people were absolutely sincere. But at the same time, I believe with everything in me, they were sincerely lost. They were sincerely separated from Christ. And so I think it's sobering for us to take the lens of that scripture and to turn it around on our own life. Because many of us could be in that very same boat, going through the motions over and over and over. And we find our, would find ourselves someday standing before Jesus saying those very same kinds of things. Lord, Lord. Didn't I go to church? Didn't I teach in kids' ministry? Didn't I lead a Bible study? Didn't I give money? Even generously give money? Didn't I serve in the church? Didn't I go into ministry? Didn't I become a pastor? Didn't I do those things for you? And this is what is striking to me, friends, is that we read this text of Scripture, and what it tells me is that there is absolutely no way for us to tell from the outside what is going on on the inside of a human heart, where they are in relation to Jesus Christ. And this is what I'm becoming more convinced of as well, as I think for us, if we are separated from him and we're just going through the motions, it becomes increasingly difficult for us to even know our own heart and where we're at with Jesus. I think Judas is a great example from the scriptures In Matthew 26, we see this picture of the Last Supper where Jesus, sitting with all of those that were closest to him, makes this startling statement to all who were there. Now, these were all these guys that had followed him his whole life, his whole ministry life. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 26, starting in verse 21. He said, while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. 
greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one, Lord? Am I the one? Isn't, isn't it interesting? That, I mean, we, we know the broader picture of the story. We know what's going on in the heart of Judas. We know that his heart is cold, but nobody else knows it. From the outside, he looks just like everybody else. And so when Jesus makes this kind of a statement, it's not like the disciples are looking around saying, we know who it is. It's Judas. We've always suspected. It is not obvious that it's him. In fact, they wonder, is it me? We can't tell from the outside what is going on in the heart of anyone. And here's what I think compounds this confusion in our Christian culture today. Many people who claim the name of Christ, who claim to be followers of him, they spend very, very little time actually reading his scripture and trying to hear his voice in the scripture. And so as a result of that, they lose this picture that the Bible paints everywhere of what a transformed life looks like. They have no expectation of what it would look like to enter into a life-changing relationship with Jesus. And so they continue on just doing the Christian thing, going through the motions. And then a second thing that flows out of this is because we don't have this larger picture, this beautiful picture of what Jesus talks about in terms of a transformed life, what that will look like, instead of comparing ourselves up against that picture, what we start to do is we just try to compare ourselves with each other. It's not so much how am I doing in light of God's plan for me, but how am I doing just in light of everybody else? Am I just kind of keeping ahead of the Joneses? To me, it's like when I was in college, we used to always go down to a little playground off of Babcock where they had these eight-foot basketball rims. And it was so fun to play on eight-foot basketball rims because you could do all kinds of things with the basketball that you could not do on regular hoops, all kinds of dunks. You would leave playing that and you would feel awesome about your basketball game. Now, was I awesome in basketball? Not at all. All I had done was lower the standard to make myself feel much better about myself. And I think that's what we do when we think about what a transformed life looks like. Instead of holding our life up to the holiness of God in this picture of a transformed life that he gives us all over the scriptures, we just lower the standard and compare ourselves to each other. And a third thing that I see happen oftentimes in American Christian culture is that we use these artificial benchmarks to define what it actually means to be rescued by God, what it means to come into a relationship with Him. And when I say that, these things actually, in and of themselves, mean nothing. But oftentimes we use these as the litmus test for whether a person truly knows Christ. Oftentimes you'll ask someone, are you a Christian? And the response will be, yes, I asked Jesus into my heart. I came forward at a church camp. I was baptized. I prayed the sinner's prayer. I raised my hand at the end of a church service. Now let me say, absolutely, I believe that those events can actually be the transformation of someone's life from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Absolutely. But those events, in and of themselves, regardless of how heartfelt or emotional they are, in and of themselves mean nothing. It's what is going on in my life right now. What is God doing in my life 
right now. Not what happened years and years ago, but is there a present working of God in my life now? I love how Jonathan Edwards said it. He was one of the great preachers of the Great Awakening, probably one of the greatest theologians that America has ever produced. This is what he said in regard to this topic of assurance, meaning how can we know? How can we know for sure that we have a relationship with God? This is what Edwards says. Assurance is never to be enjoyed on the basis of a past experience. There is need of the present and continuing work of the Holy Spirit in giving assurance. You see, it's not what has happened in the past that matters. It's what is going on now and what is going on in the future. What is the trajectory of my life? Am I in a place with God right now that he is actively transforming my life, where I'm actively experiencing intimacy with him? Is that the path that I'm on? This whole thing that we're talking about, how can we know that Jesus is our president? How can we know that Jesus is our king? This is one of the most important questions that you are ever going to ask in your life. And something as important as this, as your eternal destiny, I've got to tell you, God has no desire for this to be confusing for you in any way. He wants us to know with certainty that we belong to him. I can tell you with utmost confidence that Jesus will find absolutely no pleasure in saying, depart from me, I never knew you. He wants us to understand what does it look like? How can we know? In fact, he gave us in the Bible an entire book that is dedicated to this very topic. How can we know that we have a relationship with God? How can we know that we're going to spend eternity with him? And this book of the Bible is 1 John. And we know that this is the purpose of 1 John because at the very end of this letter, John writes out his purpose statement for us. In John 5.13, this is toward the very end of the book, this is what John says. He says, I write these things, and that these things that he's talking about, he's talking about everything that I've written up through the first five and a half chapters of this book, I've writ- I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not kind of wish for, hope for, cross your fingers behind your back, but that you could know that you have eternal life. And in this letter, John very skillfully, very bluntly, and very forcefully describes what is true of a life that is being transformed by God, that has genuinely come to salvation in Christ. I love this book because John uses the word if a lot. He doesn't assume anything with anyone. He uses the word if. He says You will know, you have come to know him if, and then he will describe something in in this book. Here's my homework assignment for you, because I wish that we could do a complete thorough study of the book of 1 John, but we would be here way into the evening. But this is the homework assignment that I want you to do. I want you to think about and reflect on the things that come from 1 John. What are the things that are part of that picture of a transformed life. 
And I've put some things in your notes there to kind of give you some bullet points of the things that you're going to find in there. And this in and of itself is not an exhaustive list either. And it's not necessarily a checklist that you're to go through and just say, check, check. But the question is, are these things true of me? Is this the trajectory of my life? And I want to say, too, that as you're reflecting on these things, it is not about perfection. It's about direction. Not do I have everything together right now, but is my life heading toward this picture of what Jesus calls of someone that has truly experienced salvation in Christ? Ten biblical tests of genuine salvation. The first one, have you enjoyed fellowship with Christ and the Father? Have you enjoyed intimacy? Do you experience God's presence? Do you experience closeness with him? Do you walk with him in a way that is marked by authenticity, where your heart is wide open before him and experiencing him in that way? Secondly, are you sensitive to sin? Not do you sin, because we all sin, but what kind of an effect does your sin have on you? Does it cause you to grieve the fact that you are alienating yourself from God and creating distance between you and him? Is there a desire to run to the cross when you realize you have gone against the things that God has laid out for you? Do you bring those things openly before God and before other people? Do you live a life of authenticity, wide open before God and others? Or do you live a double life, a hidden life? People see one thing on the outside, but there's something else hidden going on on the other side. Do you, the third thing, do you obey God's word? Do you approach God's word as, this, as if this is the voice of God and I want to hear from you? And God, whatever you say to me, as I hear from you in the word, I'm gonna obey it. I'm going to follow through on it. Is our life marked by obedience to the voice of God in his word? Do we reject this evil world? Do we long for the things of this world or do we long for the things of the kingdom? Do you eagerly await Christ's return? Is your day-to-day experience of Christ so real that you just think, I want more than anything for there to be no distance between us. I want him to come back. I want to experience even greater closeness with him. I long to be with him. Do you see a decreasing pattern of sin in your life? Do you see growth in your life over time and a willingness to turn from sin and to turn toward God? Do you love other Christians? Are you connected relationally with the family of God in a way that you can extend love and receive love from them? Do you experience answered prayer? Do you see the hand of God, the fingerprints of God in your life as you're engaging with him in an intimate conversation throughout the day? Do you see his handiwork in your life moment by moment? Do you experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit that God has sent his very presence to live within the life of every person that truly knows him? Do you experience the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Can you discern between spiritual truth and error? Do you know God in a way that when you hear things that are counter to that, you know it? Can you discern spiritual truth from error? 
Here's your homework assignment. But I don't want it to be a homework assignment from me. I want it to come from a little bit higher authority. This is a homework assignment that's coming to you from the Apostle Paul. Here is his command and challenge. In 2 Corinthians 13, this is what Paul says. Not just says, this is what Paul commands. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that you have not failed the test. My heart for every person in this room, including myself and my family, and anyone within the hearing of my voice, is that we would take the time to bow our knee before God in the scriptures and hold our life up to what are the things that he says in 1 John are true of those that have truly come to know him. This is not a test to cheat on. This is not a test to try to cut corners on. This is the most important question you're ever going to ask and answer in your life. Hold your life up to that picture, those pictures from 1 John, and examine your life. I would encourage you to take one chapter a day. There's five chapters in the book of 1 John. Take one a day throughout this week and begin to jot down what does God say is true of someone that has truly come to know him. And then as honestly and as bare naked before God as you can, hold your life up to that and just say, God, is this true of me? Do I truly know you? And what I want to say is that wherever you are at on this journey, doing this, doing what I've just described, will take you to a great place. It is going to be a win for you because if you are in a place that you truly know that you know that you know that you have a relationship with him, it's gonna be a big win for you in your spiritual life because as you engage with God in this, what he is gonna do is he is gonna pour out into your life that assurance that only comes from him by his Holy Spirit. And we're gonna experience what the great hymn writer said in that great hymn, Blessed Assurance. He said, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. We will come to that place where there's this, that overwhelming sense of joy that comes from knowing that we really know him. And for others of us, maybe we come to that place where the question is not so certain, where the waters are a little bit more muddy, And maybe we come to the place where we realize, I'm not sure that I actually know him in the way that John describes in this text. The great thing about that is you will be at an absolute place of understanding your need for him. Your need for a savior. It'll be your opportunity then to repent and to turn to him. And to come to that place of surrender where you throw your arms wide open and you say, my life is is yours. You are my king. You are my president. You are my Lord. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 talks about a little bit how we make that transition of putting our faith or our trust in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it says this. It says, for it is by grace. Grace meaning that gift of God, that unmerited favor before God, that unmerited kindness of God, for it is by his kindness and grace you have been saved through 
faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We put our faith in him. And here's where I want to try to explain a little bit about what the Bible is talking about when it uses that word faith. Because I think something that causes us to get off track a little bit in American Christianity is that we've watered down this word faith and what it actually means. There are at least three elements to faith. And the first one is knowledge. Faith requires knowledge. We have got to understand the big picture story of God. We've got to understand who he is. We need to understand who Jesus is. We need to understand what he's done for us and how that applies to our life. There's a basic knowledge that we need to have. But there's also an assent piece where it's not just that we've heard the facts, we know the facts, we know the stories, but we come to the place where we say, I believe that to be true. I know the facts and I believe those to be true. And oftentimes in American Christianity, this is where it stops. Right there, as long as I know the facts and I believe they're true, that is enough for me. But the Bible makes it very clear that there is another step to that. And James makes it absolutely clear that that is not enough. In James 2.19, he says, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Just to know the facts and to believe they're true puts us on the same level of Satan and his kingdom. He knows better than any of us the facts, and he believes probably more than any of us that those facts are true. But it doesn't bring about transformation. There's a third step to faith. There's a step called trust. There's a step called commitment. Our reliance upon a reliable God. And the best word that I've ever come up with is the word surrender. It's just where we throw our arms wide open, like I said, and we just say, my life belongs to you. I know the facts. I believe they're true. And in light of the fact that those facts are true, there's no better place for me to place my life than at your feet. I want to follow you. I want you to be my king. I want you to be my Lord. And let's be honest. It's that last piece of faith that's the difficult one. It's easy to know the facts, and it's easy to say that the facts are true. But what's difficult for us is to take our will and to lay that at his feet. Because we want to control our life. We want to control our destiny. But what the Bible is saying, what we need to do is we need to entrust that to him. We need to entrust our will to him. And that's what makes it so difficult. In Matthew chapter 7, right before the text that we looked at earlier, in verse 13... Jesus talks about this idea of why this is so difficult. He says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Only a few find it. He calls that road narrow. That gate is narrow. A word that you could use to translate that word is hard or difficult. And the thing that makes that so difficult is that, again, it's that idea of the will. Am I willing to entrust my life? Am I willing to entrust my future to give my will to someone else, 
That's what makes it so difficult and why so few people find it. Most people, I think, quite honestly, would be happy if they could just have a happy life and have a little bit of God on the side. They don't want this thing where they surrender their will to another. It's hard and it's difficult. As I thought about this message and sharing this with my friends, I was thinking about there's at least a couple ways that I think this message could be misapplied. And one way would be that you would feel judged in some way. Like, who is this guy? Who is he to judge my life and my walk with God? To try to say something about whether I actually know Christ or not. Let me just say with everything in me, I have absolutely zero desire to judge anyone's life. In fact, I have very little idea of what's going on in most of your lives. But what I do have a great desire for is that you would judge your own life. That you would honestly stand before a holy and righteous God and hold your life up to it and just say, God, do I really know you? Do I really know you? And a second way that I think that a person could misapply this message is to think, you know, my life isn't all that it should be. I don't match up to that picture of a transformed life that God talks about in the scripture. And your response to that would be, well, I'm just gonna try harder. I'm gonna do more things. I'm gonna keep going through the motions, but I'm gonna do it faster and faster and faster. Friends, that is not the application. That is not the answer to what we're talking about here. I wanna read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 to you again. It says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And then it says a couple of negative things. It makes it really clear what it's not. It says, it is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not by works so that no one can boast. If you were able to gut this out, if you were able to just go through the motions faster and faster to please God, you would have something to boast about, wouldn't you? The transformation that I'm talking about is something that only God can do from the inside out as we throw our arms wide open and say, I surrender my life to you. And what I've learned over a lot of years of ministry is that how God does this in each individual life is different for everybody. There is no formula to this. And what I do know for sure too is it's not about perfection, it's about direction. What is the trajectory of my life? But there is the expectation of change. If Christ has come into our life, truly, there is the expectation of change. All throughout scripture, every time that it talks about the transformed life, it gives us these metaphors or pictures of change. From the Old Testament prophets, starting with Ezekiel, as he prophesied the new covenant that would come one day, In Ezekiel 36, this is what he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This picture of radical transformation, this heart that was hard and cold and unresponsive to God gets replaced with a heart that is soft and tender and responsive 
to God. Radical transformation. It's heart surgery, friends. And when Jesus talked about the transformed life in the Gospels, he talked about it in terms of a new birth. In John 3, Jesus says, In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. It's not just adding a little Jesus to your life. It's about being transformed. And the Apostle Paul drives it home in his letter to the second, in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. When Jesus comes to live in your life, when Jesus becomes your king, when Jesus becomes your president, when he becomes the ultimate authority in your life, it brings about change. Friends, the greatest question that we can ever ask is the question we start about, started with. Is Jesus really my president? Is Jesus really my king? It's the most important question you're ever gonna ask or answer. Let's pray. Father, I just want to come before you and I just want to say thank you that you have provided everything that we need to have a relationship with you. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. Lord, thank you that you did for us what we could not do for ourselves. God, I just pray for our family here at Journey Church, Lord, that you would pour your spirit out in our life. Lord, that as we engage you in the scriptures, God, as we look at those pictures from your word of what it means to be transformed by the power of your gospel, Lord, that you would help us to honestly look at our lives and you would show us by your kindness and your grace where we stand before you. Lord, we know that you do not want to one day look at us and say, I never knew you. Lord, you want us to know you. You don't want us to just go through the motions. God, would you help us reveal our own hearts to ourselves? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.